I'm on. My name is Marshall uh, Brown. I am uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, let me pray before we consider this most holy of passages. Our great God, every week we come to your word, which is holy and holy ground. But this week it is especially so. As we come to the crucifixion of the Son of God, that frightful day 2,000 years ago that changed the course of history. For me to speak of it, for me to preach on it, feels like an infant asked to handle and wisely nuclear codes. And so, God, I pray that the words of my mouth, I pray that the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing to you. We will never plumb the depths of your love for us and the death of Christ. But I pray by some small measure we would enter in, that we would enter into your great love for us that happened on that dark day in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Lord, be with us. We need you. I need you for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, if you think about antiquity, particularly in uh, the West, it's the great poems, it's the great epics that reflect the culture. Think about the great poem of the Greeks, the Iliad by Homer, the Iliad. What is the first line? What is the first line of the Iliad and the great theme of the Iliad? Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son, Achilles. Or think of the first line of the very famous great Roman epic and poem, the Aeneid. I sing of warfare and a man at war, or I sing of violence and a man of violence. In fact, the Aeneid, written by Virgil just a few years before the birth of Jesus, written to honor Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, the Aeneid ends with an unforgettable image of violence. In the final lines of the poem, Aeneas, the founder of the Roman race, whose descendants are destined to rule over the peoples of the earth, plunges his sword into the breast of a defeated enemy in a fit of rage. These poems, these epics, they reflect a worldview. The worldview of the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans. It was a dog-eat-dog world where might made right. To have power was to do what you wanted with whom you wanted when you wanted. It was an era of bloodshed and savagery. Purges indiscriminately, people killed, eugenics. Even the most enlightened of that era, Aristotle, defended and condoned slavery, saying that humanity was decided, divided between slaves and non-slaves. Tom Holland has spent a good bit of his career writing about the Greeks, the Romans, and the Persians in the years four to five hundred years before Christ. Uh, but his most recent book is called Dominion. It's about Christianity. And what he, he was so attracted to what he calls the apex predators, the apex predators of the ancient world, the Julius Caesars, the, the, the Alexanders, the apex predators. But the more he reflected on them, he realized that they, the tyrannos, the human tyrannosauruses, as it were, of that generation, that he did not share a moral universe with them. That something had radically changed from that worldview of violence and might makes right and doggy dog. Something had changed radically to the world that we live in today. What happened to change the world? Well, according to Tom Holland, that event, the event that changed, was the crucifixion 
of a Galilean peasant and the rise of Christianity. Rather boldly, Holland, who I don't know if he's a Christian or not, he asserts that it was primarily Christianity and the death of Jesus that led to a massive change in the way the world is viewed morally. He contends rather boldly that it's Christianity that led ultimately to the abolition of slavery, to civil rights, the end of apartheid, and the Me Too movement. Now let me be very clear, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus, the, Christi- the, the legacy of Christianity is very much mixed, even especially on those topics. But it is undeniable that the crucifixion of Jesus and the rise of Christianity undermined the prevailing dog-eat-dog worldview of the Romans, the Greeks, and the Persians. Now, in the weeks of Lent leading up to Easter, we have been looking at the last eight days, the last eight days of Jesus' life. We've called the sermon series, Eight Days That Changed the World. And it is absolutely a fact that the world was fundamentally different after these eight days, which actually we begin the first of these eight days today, Palm Sunday through to Easter Sunday, next Lord's Day. They are the still point of a turning world. But as I've thought and read and prayed and written sermons, I almost have wished, and maybe this is a coming year, that we hadn't talked about eight days that changed the world, but six hours that changed the world. The six hours that Jesus, the Son of God, hung on a Roman cross. Because today we look at the crucifixion, those six hours and the early morning hours that preceded it when Jesus was tried. The crucifixion, it is central to what we believe. It is in every service of ours, in the creed, in the Lord's Supper. It is in so many of the songs we sing. It's even on quite a few national flags It is central to our logo and untold other churches around the world. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion. There's no way we can cover everything, but this morning I want us to look at four things. What happened, what it means, what it shows us, and what we're called to do in light, the crucifixion. First, what happened? Now, to begin to appreciate the crucifixion, You kind of have to understand the various context in which it happened in the first century. The Roman, the Jewish, and the early Christian. First, the Roman context. To understand the scandal of the cross, you need to understand that the great goal of the Roman Empire, which was the ruling power in the first century, the great goal of the Roman Empire was to create conditions where the good life was possible. And so what that meant and included was political stability, prosperity, and maintaining order. And the Roman Empire had mechanisms for doing that. They had an army, they built roads, they had an imperial system. It was all unto order so that the good life could flourish and happen. But the punishment for violating or threatening that order was crucifixion. Crucifixion was a very public way of saying this is what happens to enemies of Rome. This is what happens to those who subvert the order of our empire. Now, crucifixion was obviously very painful. Nails through the wrists and through the ankles. And it took an excruciatingly long time to die, sometimes 24 hours or more. And you didn't die of blood loss. You functionally died of exhaustion that led to asphyxiation because you would have to push yourself up by your legs and you would get exhausted, you'd quit giving, and you would die in your own breath, asphyxiated. 
But not only was it painful, it was public, intentionally public. You may have heard a preacher say, I may have said it sometime, that the crucifixion, we should hang, you know, something like a, it'd be like hanging an uh, electric chair around your neck. Well, not really. Electric chair, first of all, happens like this. And also, an electric chair is very private. But a crucifixion was public. It was to ha hang for hours, even days on an end, naked in public before everyone. The public part was Rome not just trying to scare people, but to shame them. Russell Moore suggests that the crucifixion was like putting somebody's name and their whole family on the sex offenders list. Fleming Rutledge writes this, The crucifixion was a public announcement. This person is scum of the earth, not fit to live, more an insect than a human being. End quote. Deserved to be squashed. To die on a Roman cross was scandalous, it was grotesque, it was shameful, it was awful. The great writer, the great Roman writer of the order Cicero, writing several decades before the birth of Jesus, basically said that a good Roman citizen shouldn't even mention or think of or name a crucifixion. That had to happen for the order to go on, but a good Roman shouldn't even think about it because it was so very awful. So that's the Roman context. Well, the Jewish context, a little bit more briefly, it was, of course, despised and dirty because to be a Jew, you would have had to come into contact and even swap bodily fluids with the hated imperial Romans. You would have had to draw near. You would have been ceremonially unclean, of course, not to speak of dead. But in addition to that, for a Jew to be crucified was to be cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 says, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Cursed of God, shamed by the Romans. And then there's the testimony, or the lack of it, frankly, of the early Christians. This is fascinating to me. If you read or study the history of the early Christian church and the Christian art, the cross does not show up as a positive symbol for several hundred years. In the churches, in the catacombs, the cross is not depicted. Why? I think the early Christians just, they knew how much shame was associated with the crucifixion that they didn't even want to put it in their artwork, in their churches, in their graveyards. It is hard to overestimate how awful and degrading a crucifixion was. It was to strip somebody of their humanity. And so this brings us to Jesus' crucifixion. In chapter 26, the last part of chapter 26, Jesus is betrayed. Consider the loneliness and the isolation of this. Jesus is betrayed by one of his own, by Judas... He's deserted by all his friends. They all leave, Matthew 26. He's arrested and tried before religious leaders who you would think would be looking out for his interest, trying to protect him before the Roman bar, but no. And then, of course, he is denied by his second best friend in the world, by Peter. That's all in chapter 26. As morning breaks in chapter 27, the verses that Chris read for us, the religious leaders formally decide that Jesus must be destroyed. Jesus must die. Verse 2, they bind him and they turn him over to the Roman authority, to Pontius Pilate. I'm going to move pretty quickly here. Verse 11, he is tried by Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus answers, you have said so. And then significantly, Jesus gets quiet. He doesn't talk anymore. Verse 14, Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The greatest injustice of all time is about to be perpetrated, and he doesn't even say a mumbling word. He utters nothing, offers no defense. Pilate, in many ways, tries his best to get Jesus off. 
but he cannot reason with the crowds. The crowds are so enraged. Think about this. He says, let the, his blood be on our, our heads and our children's heads. They call down, they're so enraged at Jesus that they call down curses not just on themselves, but on their children and on their grandchildren. Pilate gives up. He turns him over to be uh, crucified. He has him scourged, which, by the way, was to be built, was to be hit with a a whip, a multi-pronged whip that was embedded with bones and with metal and delivers him to be crucified. The soldiers who are escorting him, they strip him naked, take his clothes from him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They place a crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed in his hands, the mock scepter of a king. Then they kneel before him, mocking a man whose hands are tied, whose back is bleeding, who is wearing a crown of thorns. Hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. They take that reed from his hand, and then they begin to beat him on the head with it. They lead him out to be crucified. Again, they take the robe from him, put his clothes back on him, then take the clothes back off. And then he hangs naked on a cross for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And this is astonishing to me. All this time, there's no record in any of the Gospels of anyone speaking up for him. No one speaks up for Jesus. His friends have deserted him. Where are the people he healed? Where are the people that he taught? Where are the people whose sins he forgave? Where are the people that just five days before had said, Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where were his friends? No one spoke up for him. The silence would be deadening if it were not for the other people. Mocking, shaming, spewing vitriol. Verse 39 and 40, those who passed by, they derided him and they wagged their heads. The religious leaders, verse 41 through 43, they scorn him, they shame him, they mock him. Religious leaders. And then even the criminals, verse 44, they revile him. Verse 45, at the sixth hour, which is noon, darkness descends upon the land. Jesus hangs there for three more hours. Verse 46, at the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m., Jesus cries to his heavenly Father, your God and mine, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not long after that, he's offered a drink. He cries out a last time. He gives up his spirit, and he dies. Betrayed, deserted, denied, unjustly accused, associated with criminals, forsaken by the religious authorities, mocked, hanging naked in public, hit while his hands are bound, scourged, spit upon, murdered. By any account, by any account, Roman, Jewish, Christian, modern, this is disgusting. It is shameful. It's a travesty of justice. This, this is the low point of human history. This is the kind of thing that all you can do is turn your head away because it's just so awful. And yet... (laughs) This is astonishing to me. There's very few records of crucifixion in the ancient world. It was so awful. Following the advice of Cicero, people didn't write about it. But all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, the testimonies about Jesus, all four, they slow down at this point. It's almost as if they glory in the details. They pay great attention to what happens. 
I mean, one of the struggles of preaching through the gospel of Matthew, I feel like I have to sprint and skip passages so we don't spend 100 years in the book of Matthew. But not here. He slows down. Seems to glory in it. This thing that Cicero had said was unspeakable. Giving attention to the details. And not just the early gospel writers, but it was still and it was and still the sh- should be the hallmark of Christian churches. I mean, consider the Apostle Paul, who spends a lot of time writing about this. When he writes to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He did not say, I resolved to know nothing among you but Jesus and him resurrected. He did not say, I resolved to know nothing among you but Jesus and the power and filling of the Holy Spirit. I, desire, I resolved to know nothing among you but Jesus and him crucified. And that's not the only place he says something like that. When he's writing to the Galatians, he says this. This is Galatians 6.14. I will never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. How, friends, did the crucifixion and the cross, symbols of death, of shame, of awfulness, how did the cross and the crucifixion become signs not just of hope, but of the end of death and the beginning of life and love, which is to say, what does the crucifixion mean? What does the crucifixion mean? I could go on for 100 years and not exhaust it. I have, I have several friends who have written dissertations, doctoral dissertations on this very question. What does the crucifixion mean? Well, I'll give you a couple things. It means the example of God's love for us. It means the satisfaction of God's honor. It means that Christ has defeated the powers of evil and one day put them to an open shame. That is great hope for us. It means that Jesus has been our substitute, penal substitution. In our place, Jesus condemned stood. The crucifixion means your sins are forgiven. It means they're wiped away. That's called expiation. It means that God's wrath is turned away. That's called propitiation. I could go on and on and on. The the crucifixion means so much. It's like a mosaic or a symphony with notes and pictures that you can't all capture. It is glorious. The New Testament is basically devoted to figuring it out. I have so many books on my shelf called The Cross of Jesus Christ or some reference thereof. There is so much to be said. It is everything. What does the cross mean? It means everything to us. But let me just take a few things from this passage of what the crucifixion means. Indulge me while I read again verses 50 to 54 of chapter 27. Because this is after Jesus has died. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And then what happened in that moment? And behold, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The tombs, well, excuse me, and, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. A couple things real quick from these verses. First of all, the curtain. Now, the temple curtain was in the temple. It was around the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And beyond that temple, beyond that curtain, was the place where God's special presence dwelt, his Shekinah glory. It was a place that was only entered into one time a year by one man with blood on his hands, the high priest. Once a year, it was the special presence of God. And here in this moment, that temple curtain is torn into from top to bottom, right? Because the curtain suggested that God is unapproachable, that you cannot come into his presence. 
But when that temple curtain is torn in two, it says that heaven is open. The dwelling place of God is with men, that he has come near, that you can know and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and through him, God the Father, it is open. And the fact that it comes from the top to the bottom is significant. This is not something that people have done, men or women have done. This is something that God has done. He has separated the temple. The temple is open for business. Heaven is open. And then there's the earthquake. Now, how strange is this, right? The tombs open because there's an earthquake. They, you know, they had rocks that cover the... So there's an earthquake that opens the tombs. And it says, after the resurrection, these Old Testament saints, they come up and they start walking around the city. I got no idea, okay? The Bible doesn't talk much more about this. There's little to be accomplished by speculating what happened here. But here is what is clear. Everything that separates God from people... Even death has been destroyed by Jesus' crucifixion. Everything that separates us from God has been destroyed by Jesus' death. And then there's this centurion at the end. I love this guy. I want to meet him in heaven. He sees all this and he says, surely this was the Son of God. What does the crucifixion mean? At the end of the day, it means your sins are forgiven if you are in Christ and you can draw near to God and know him personally. Amen. The crucifixion, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is a bit of a crude metaphor to transition, but the crucifixion is like an instrument that accomplished something. Namely, it reconciled us to God, forgave our sins and reconciled us to God. But the crucifixion is also a lens, like the lens of my glasses because I'm going blind because I'm getting old. It's like the lens that allows us to see more clearly. If you're like me and you have to go to the eye doctor every couple of years, what do you do? They, they, they show you the lens, A or B, right? They're trying to make it more and more clear. The crucifixion is making who God is as clear as he is anywhere until the new heavens and the new earth. Because what does the crucifixion show us? The first thing the crucifixion shows us is ourselves. It's a mirror into the darkness of our hearts. It is a statement of who we are. The cross of Jesus Christ says, you're not good enough. Your abilities, your achievements, your basic decency, it's not enough. We deserve the judgment of God. The crucifixion says that we are displeasing because of who we are and what we are. I think when Paul says, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified, he's made that resolution because it is such a temptation to turn our face away from the truth of who we are. But the cross, if you focus on the cross, you can't help but be exposed as a sinner, as a rebel against God and under his judgment. Friends, the cross says you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine. So much so that the very Son of God had to die for you. A couple years ago, I told this story of visiting the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Where in September 1963, four white men planted a bomb that morning that killed four little girls who are waiting for Sunday school to start. Thank God that church is still active and vibrant. And I stood there right where the bomb had been, right where the steps were, where the little girls had died. And I thought of those men placing that dynamite there under the cover of darkness. And I thought of the little girls playing before Sunday school, not unlike our children here. And you stand at a place like that, you can't help it. Why? Why did this happen? 
Now, the steps where the bomb went off are on the side of the church. But if you go inside the church, there's a very famous stained glass window called the Wales Window. I actually put it on the front of your bulletin this morning. You might want to look at it now. The Wales Window, because when the the church was bombed, all the windows were, of course, shattered. And this stirred a Welsh artist named John Petz, who had been outraged by the bombing. And he created this, and this is a rendition of it. It's a beautiful and haunting piece of art, depicting a brown-skinned Christ who is crucified. As recorded by Fleming Rutledge, the artist, Pet says that one powerful arm is turned against the demonic forces that brought him to the cross. The other arm is extended to an embrace of all creation. But it's the inscription that's unnerving, prophetic, and provocative. You do it to me. Think about this. This artist chose to put this in the worship center in the sanctuary of a church that was full of victims of violence who had lost their children and their grandchildren and their friends. And yet there's this stained glass window that says, you do it to me. Provocative. I mean, it's a quote from Jesus' Olivet Sermon in Matthew 25 we looked at a few weeks ago. But the artist has taken those words and applied them to the crucifixion and to you and to me. You do it. To me, in the heart of humanity, in your heart, in my heart, lurks such a darkness that we crucified Christ. If you ever wonder what you would have done 2,000 years ago, you would have been saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, because we do that every day of our life with our actions. I wonder, do you believe that about yourself? I'll tell you, I struggle with that. I think of myself as a pretty good person. I'm a pastor. I'm a safe family. I'm a, I'm a host family for safe volunteers. I'm a pretty good person. As I was researching this, I came across the pictures of the men who planted that bomb. My first thought was, you lowlife. You disgust me. But then I remembered the prophetic witness of that stained glass. You, Marshall. You do it to me. The crucifixion is a mirror that holds up and exposes and asks us to examine ourselves. But that's not all it is. <laughs> that's not all it is because even more so than that, it is not just a res- an expose of who we are, an examination of who we are. Much more so, the cross of Jesus Christ is a revelation of the heart of our God. I love what Romans 5, 8 says, God shows, he shows his love for us. How do you show your love to your spouse or your children? How does God show his love for us? Romans 5, 8, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's not that we knew nothing of of God before Christ's death. We have his beauty and creation, his love for us, his providential care for us. We have the lovely and wonderful promises to Abraham that show his concern for the whole world. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the climax of God's love for us and dramatic and final proof of both his love and his justice. The cross says that God so loved us that he died in our place. You see, it says, not only are you more wicked than you ever dared imagine, but you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. You see, friends, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we most clearly see who God is. Because more, more clearly than any place else in history or redemption, we see that God is a God of justice who does not sacrifice one iota of his justice. He satisfies his justice. 
But he also overcomes that justice with his full and final love. And there's no place in all of creation where that is seen more clearly than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The cross is the revelation of God's love for the world. I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, because the cross shows us who we are, it's like a lens, a mirror to our own life, and to see God's love for us, it brings us to the last point. What do we do with the crucifixion? You see, knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified, we have to take the cross and apply it to everything in our life. Let me go back on our sermon just a little bit here. In 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, for that matter, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And basically what those books are, are taking the cross of Jesus Christ and applying them to the Corinthians, who were a very immoral church, debauched, incestuous. They talked about incestuous relationships within the church, idol worshiping. He takes the cross in 1 Corinthians and applies it to that immoral church. Well, a few years before, he had taken the cross and applied it to the church at Galatians. In Galatia, which was a very moral church, a very smug church, a very self-righteous church. You see, friends, every topic that can come up can be and should be placed under the gospel of Jesus Christ and his cross. In Corinthians, he takes the cross and applies it to sex counseling for married couples. In Galatians, he takes it and applies it to racism in Galatia. My question is, what is going on with you today? That you need to take the cross of Jesus Christ and look at your life through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. What is it today for you? Let me give a couple examples to bring this to life. Maybe you're in a tough marriage, a lonely marriage. Several things happen. The cross of Christ does several things. One, it humbles you. You start to see your own faults, your own shortcomings. But also the cross gives you a little bit of perspective on your spouse. You see them as broken, needing the love of God and getting it. But the crucifixion also says God loves you. You may be in a loveless marriage where you don't have affection. But the cross of Jesus Christ says you can have someone, a person who loves you fully and completely. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say something to students, whether middle school, high school college or graduate, maybe you did not get or not thinking you're going to get, you're anxious about getting the right job, into the right school, making the team, getting the part in the play. The crucifixion says that God loves you, that you are worthy, so worthy that the Son of God died for you, no matter what your achievements or lack thereof. Or maybe you did get all those things. You got into the school. You got the scholarship. You got the promotion. What does the cross say to you? You need to be humble. You see, You never get over. My New Testament professor, now with the Lord, Knox Chamlin, said, you never get beyond the cross of Jesus Christ. You never get beyond it. You only get deeper into it. And so, friends, my charge to you this week, especially this week, Holy Week, take the cross and survey it. Take some time to yourself, alone in the quiet, to just think about what the cross means for you. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and die to all my pride. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the love of God demonstrated in your cross for us. I pray that just a little bit today and this week, 
we would dive more deeply into that cross and to your crucifixion. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.